Welcome to episode one of the Victory Podcast, where we talk about life, leadership, and journey. I'm your host, Jakob Worksman. I'm here today with Dr. Robert Adams. Uh, Robert, pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, for all our viewers and listeners out there, Robert is a former Eagle Scout, physician, author of two books, former Navy SEAL, 82nd Airborne Combat Physician and Delta Force Command Surgeon, husband, and father. Bob, what's going on? Well, just enjoying having a chance to sit down and talk during the COVID crisis. Nobody's going to work, so we might as well have a chat. Amen. And, and you know, again, thanks for being here. So let's start out, uh, kind of take us back to, you know, your experience as an Eagle Scout. What what really was the motivator and the driving factor behind coming becoming one? Uh, what were some challenges you faced uh, in that journey? Well, scouting for me was probably one of the greatest forces in my life. I grew up in a dysfunctional family with an alcoholic father, Navy pilot, moving every three years of our lives. And scouting, you know, picked, uh, picked me up around 11 years old and uh, took me all the way to adulthood. Uh, I, st- I actually started scouting in Yokosuka, Japan, enjoyed it greatly, made it up to Life Scout, one short of Eagle, and then we transferred to Pensacola, Florida, where um, I did junior high school and high school and, and achieved Eagle Scout rank went on to order the arrow and was able to use scouting as an escape. Uh, primarily, it gave me self-confidence. It gave me uh, friends that I needed in a you know transition that is typical in military families. And uh, I stayed right into scouts uh, until I, I aged out of it. And uh, then I, I started in my own Explorer Scout troop in uh, Pensacola, Florida, which interestingly... At the time, I had no interest in medicine significantly, but my Eagles, my Explorer Scout troop hooked up with the local hospital. And we thought it was kind of cool to be around hospitals and ambulances and sick people. And of course, later on in life, that helped me pick doctor as a future profession. So what's, I mean, you know, Eagle Scout's always been a, you know, fascinating journey for me. Um, Haven't had much, you know, intimate relationship with, the scouting community besides, you know, peers and former colleagues that, you know, were also Eagle Scouts. So just for me and some of the viewers and listeners, you know, could you kind of describe what's one big takeaway or, you know, life skill that you learned from scouting that you still use today? Anything come to mind? Well, sure. Um, the, um, the scout motto, which is all about other people and not self, is probably the biggest learning point that, uh, that, that, Every scout takes away whether they make it to Eagle or not. You know, to get to Eagle, you got to finish those 21 merit badges. And, and um, you know, interesting, I like, to, I like to point out that the last merit badge that I needed in order to qualify for Eagle Scout was my physical fitness merit badge because I just couldn't do the seven-second 50-yard dash. <laughs> I, I was too young. And, um, the uh, you know, to go on and become a Navy SEAL later on, I get a kick out of pointing out that uh, I just couldn't get over that physical fitness hurdle. But it's it, it teaches uh, self as backseat to others. And I think that's the biggest leadership goal that everybody takes out of being a scout. 
So you mentioned your dad was a um, alcoholic. You mind kind of elaborating on your upbringing and family dynamics? Yeah. So I am a fifth generation career military man, but had no interest whatsoever in the military uh, when I was younger. Because uh, I looked at my dad, you're dragging his family around every three years. We moved to a different place. My grandfather was a three-star admiral, superintendent of the Naval Academy. My great-grandfather was a brigadier general in the Army. My great-great-granddad was an Army cavalryman commissioned by Lincoln at the battles of Gettysburg. And all of them were career men. But when they would talk to me about the military, I just go, I don't want anything to do with it. Thank you very much. That all changed in 1967 when I was a junior in high school and Reader's Digest published an article called Super Commandos of the Wetlands and it announced the existence of this secret organization called Navy SEALs. And I went, wow, uh, this sounds like something I could do as a, for a living. And when I thought about it, well, that means I have to be in the military. If I'm going to go into the military, I might as well go to the, be an officer. And if I'm going to be an officer, I might as well go to the Naval Academy. So in my junior year, I walked into my dad's office and said, hey, dad, how do I get into the Naval Academy? I thought he was going to wet his pants. <laughs> so first first SEAL in your family. Absolutely. When I told my dad I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, he didn't know what it was, and uh, neither did most people in the world. Um, you know, My dad was an aviator. My granddad was a ship a battleship commander. Grand granddad was Army Cavalry, and as was his father. Uh, all West Pointers before my, my granddad, um, who's, who married, interestingly, my grandfather, the three-star admiral, married uh, the daughter of one of his father's classmates, were both West Pointers, class of 1898, the first team to beat Navy at the Army Navy football game. So it goes way back. You know, Bob, the, uh, the dynamic of uh, having, you know, generational family members be, you know, military members and them not knowing what this, what a Navy SEAL or the SEAL community was, you know, back when you joined the military and went through BUDS is astonishing if you compare it to today, right? I, I recently read a statistic that uh, the SEAL Trident and Insignia is one of the most, you know, identifiable logos in the United States, you know, right up there with Coca-Cola and Nike. So, wow, incredible. Well, it's, I mean, go back. To when I made this choice, um, I did get into the Naval Academy and showed up there saying, I want to be a Navy SEAL. And they went, yeah, yeah, we've heard about this and everything. But, you know, there were only three slots for Navy SEAL training given to my class of 73. One of those were uh, taken by later four-star Admiral Eric Olson, who stuck it out through the, the lean times of early days of Naval Special Warfare to uh, set the standard for leadership in our community. But uh, when I when I arrived, they said, the reason you don't want to consider this, Bob, is there's no career in Naval Special Operations. And there wasn't at the time. You know, you might make commander. And I think there were two captains, one on each coast. But, you know, that's not what you go to the Naval Academy for. You go here to be admirals and just put it aside and forget about it. And, you know, I just nodded and smiled and said, okay, but that's really why I'm here. And nobody seems to care about it or understand what that is. And, of course, neither did I. But um, what, what, what reopened the, uh, the agenda for me following that pathway was on graduation from the academy. Since I did not get one of the three slots for SEAL training for our class, 
I was assigned to a destroyer out of San Francisco, and that was going to be my career start, which I wasn't thrilled about. But I used my 30 days of basket leave on graduation to join 12 other of my academy classmates to go to Key West, Florida, and go to the underwater swimmer school in Key West, Florida, and earn my little silver third-class diver's badge. Interestingly, one of our instructors was a Navy SEAL, and he saw me down there smiling and loving everything we're doing. And they're, you know, they're trying to make it really hard, and they did. But he came up to me one day, he goes, you know, sir, we're trying to hurt you down here, and you seem to be the happiest guy in the class. You ever thought about being a Navy SEAL? <laughs> and that's what reoriented me down that path. And then, so I went on that ship, understanding that there was a an enlisted SEAL out there who thought I might be able to do what he did. And a year after I'd been on that ship, a Navy SEAL recruiter by the name of Scotty Lyons came through town. And people in the SEAL community might remember that name as the famous leader of the Barefoot Patrol in Vietnam. And uh, I got an email through the Navy All-Nav saying, hey, we're doing SEAL tryouts next week. Anybody wants to come, come. And I went to my boss on the ship and said, I'm going to need the day off <laughs> next week. He goes, okay, permission granted. Go ahead. And, you know, I, that, that, from, you know, six months later, I was in Navy SEAL training. What was it like being on a, a Navy, you know, ship in the 70s? So wonderful question. That was the worst event experience of my life from a uh, life in general, a leadership and challenge, a military experience. But Vietnam ended the year before I graduated from the Naval Academy. Basically, it was over in 72. So 73, I launched into a post-Vietnam military that was the beginning of the end for, you know, happy military time. This was when, you know, you were told not to wear your uniforms when you're on vacation. People like to spit on you as baby killers. Post-Vietnam drawdown, money in the military was dropping the... Uh, the special operations community, which is still brand new, uh, had trouble getting money for its bullets and its demolition and its boats. I was jumping uh, 1950 parachutes from the Korean War, getting a demolition that was TNT that was covered with this black exudate called nitroglycerin that was oozing out of it because it was so old. When I tried to buy bullets for a nine millimeter, they said, we don't have any more of those. So it was a, it was a hard time to be in the military. Interestingly, I literally, as the first lieutenant on a destroyer, had men in my division that had been sent to the Navy instead of going to jail as punishment. Not a great time for leadership. No, not at all. And so, I mean, I've also, you know, heard rumors from, you know, people from your generation, your era of, of uh, service members where they've talked about the you know, drug and recreational use in the military. Was that something you ever crossed paths with? Oh, very, very, very high problem with that. I was on a destroyer with other officers um, that were regular users of marijuana in the BOQ that I also lived in. My, my, I had the deck division, the deck apes. And I had one of the men come to me and say, um, sir, I don't know who to talk to here, but I'm in fear for my life because I'm the only member in the deck division that doesn't use drugs. And I went to the chief petty officer that was in charge of my division. And I said, chief, is it possible that what this man told me is true? 
And he goes, sir, not only is it true, you know, I know who the dealers are on our ship. I know who's carrying guns. And as the chief of this division, all I can do is let them know that I know. And I said, what do you do? He says, well, I pat them on their gun when I see them. And I say hello, so they know that I know that if anything ever happens, they're going to jail. Well, what do I do? You know, and I had a I had an event at sea where I came up as a division officer on deck because I thought I smelled marijuana, and I caught two guys smoking marijuana up on the signal bridge, and I saw them throw the the, the joint over the side. And I knew that the wind was blowing in the direction that would put it, put it down on the deck below. So I called the chief and I said, bring your test kit. I told the two guys to stay where they were. We found the joint. We tested the pots from marijuana. We took them to uh, captain's mast. And one of them had a marijuana leaf tattooed on his shoulder. And the, the captain, who was an alcoholic, <laughs> dismissed it or circumstantial evidence because we lost the chain of custody when he threw it over the side. And I went, really, sir? You know, I'm, I'm not really sure you're developing the kind of leadership and management standards that I'd like to operate with on this ship. But uh, it was a time when everybody used drugs. The Army was much, much worse than the Navy. Um, and, and again, judges were ordering people to military service instead of going to jail. So we didn't have the, the best of the best, but the SEALs did. And when I got there, it was a whole new world. Yeah. So let's dive into that journey a little bit more. So uh, you get to BUDS, you know, what's the emotion going through your mind? Uh, was it the same? Did you, were you greeted with other highly motivated individuals that were there for the, you know, common purpose that you were, or was it, you know, more of the post-Vietnam era, you know, tryouts slash anti, you know, military youth. I mean, what kind of individuals were there with you? From my recollection, my class had 70 members and some of them didn't know why they were there. They, they just had signed on somebody's dotted line. Not many, but a couple, and they were gone very quickly. But most everybody were there to test themselves. They thought it would be a great challenge. They didn't know much about it. Um, and so, you know, only 11 out of the 70 of us made it. And I don't know what your training class was like, but that's a pretty typical statistic. About 20% made it through then as they do now. But people were motivated and there weren't any drug users in our bunch. And all of our instructors were right out of Vietnam and uh, they were decorated with the Medal of Honor and the Navy Cross on down. And, you know, very intimidating bunch of men to stand before and say, you know, I want to be one of you. And one of my fondest memories of my first day of real training was uh, there was a chief petty officer who wore the Navy Cross who pulled us all over, seven officers, and he lined us up and he says, gentlemen, I need to have a chat with you. I said, you're going to lead this class. And then if you graduate, you're going to lead me and the men that I serve with now. You know, we're looking at this guy whose muscles are bulging through his blue and gold sweatshirt and whose Navy Cross is the top thing. And he says, we're going to need you to show us that you can lead us into combat. And if at any point in time during your training, any one of you officers give us one moment of doubt, you'll be gone the next day. I just, I just looked at him and holy crap. Yes. You know, I'm a young, so, so powerful. Time, and he's asking me to live up to that standard. 
and, and to this day, and I wrote this in my first book um, about Navy SEAL Hell Week, when I look back on the greatest achievements or the greatest events in my life, it was that same chief petty officer shaking my hands at graduation and welcoming me to the teams. I had met his standard. Yeah, just the, you know, responsibility and burden you have to feel, you know, burden and blessing, if you will, for, you know, having one of these combat tested and proven Navy SEAL, you know, legendary frogmen. Uh, now your instructor and looking in the eyes and challenging you with, you know, do you have what it takes? You know, you're about to embark on this journey. And at the end of the day, do you know what it means to be a SEAL? You know, you're going to have to get my my back and my friends back. I mean, what an incredible dynamic. So talk, tell us about your buds experience. Um, goods, bads, ugly. Uh, did you ever, you know, was there a moment in time where you're looking back today uh, and reflecting back and saying, you know, this was the moment I had to dig deep and, and persevere through mental toughness, et cetera, to make it through. So there's a chap, the, the whole book that I wrote called, you know, six days of impossible is looking at just Navy seal hell week. And as you know, that's the fourth week of a six month long basic training. And I, nobody's really told the story of what it means to go through hell week. So I made that a three and a half year adventure to, write back and analyze it and talk to each of my 11 graduating classmates and try to figure out why we made it. 60 people didn't, and we did. And so the subtitle of my book is A Doctor Looks Back. So I went back as a clinician trying to find the common theme that maybe I could identify what it was that the 11 of us had in common that allowed us to survive the unthinkable. Six days of no sleep, soaking wet, freezing cold, shivering <laughs> day after day without quitting is a, is a challenge that we're all proud we did, but never really understood why we did it. So when I look back in answer to your question on training, I look back on it as the most wonderful six months of my life. I wanted that challenge. I wanted to be tested. I wanted to see if I could do it. And that connects very directly to what I discovered that we all had in common. The 11 of us that made it through training made it because life had already kicked our ass before we got there. We had already been tested by alcoholic parents by adopted parents, by fathers that, you know, had fist fights with their sons, by hockey players that, you know, went there as the only friendly place they knew. And, you know, to others that were so poor, poor was spelled with four O's, and they had survived life, went to SEAL training for two reasons, to prove to themselves that they were okay, and to prove to the world that they weren't as bad as everybody was telling them they were. That was our common theme. And so when I when I presented this to my classmates, they went, oh, be damned, you know, you're right. We all did have that desire to prove to ourselves and to others that we were okay. And I asked Mike Thornton, our Medal of Honor trainer, if he felt that was the case. And he goes, absolutely, Bob. You know, I worked in the attics of, of my father's business at 11 years old, you know, in 120 degree weather, putting in air conditioning systems. And when I had to draw, draw on deep-rooted need to survive, I remembered that uh, I'd been there before. And, and, and an interesting, oh, by the way, comes with that. After I had written the book and after I had a chance to talk to my classmates, 
I shared with them um, a, an additional revelation, revelation that I that I put in the oh by the way closing chapters of my book. Seal, as you know, training is designed to take you to the the limit, the physical or mental limit that we all have and that we all believe in. Um, when if you played sports, you know your coach can push you to the point where your body won't work anymore. Hell Week is designed to take everybody to that point. And you'll get there and you'll say, I can't. And that's when all the instructors jump on you and they push you beyond that line. And once you step over the line of impossible, impossible ceases to exist. Well, I was telling one of my classmates, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I never found that limit. I, Hell Week never took me to that point. It took me to a point beyond which I ever dreamed I could go, but not to the point of no return. And and one of my other classmates looked at me in you know in equal chagrin and said, "Be either, yeah, are we are we bad people?" And I and I and you know I analyzed it. And again, as a clinician, I look back and I go, "Turns out there's a number of people that go through Steel Hell Week and really never make it to their physical or mental limits." And the reason is, life had already taken us to that point or beyond that point. And if the Navy had tried to take us to where we had already been it would have probably been illegal. You know, that story just brought up my own personal memories where I'm reflecting back to my buds experience and going through SEAL training and it came to mind, yeah, you're hundred percent right. You know, even though there's generations between, you know, your class going through and my own, uh, a large deal of all my classmates and teammates that made it through, they did come from troubled backgrounds, right? I think too often, you know, uh, or not troubled, but troubled, hard, uh, you know, uphill battles, et cetera. And so too often, you know, civilians and people that haven't experienced, you know, elite communities in the military, they have this idea of what a Navy SEAL is, right? And it's this six foot something, 250 pound barrel chested freedom fighter with, you know, two sleeve tattoos. And at the end of the day, while those those guys do exist, you know, that's not the majority. The majority are individuals that are just normal people and normal guys from normal walks of life. Just in my last platoon, uh, we had, you know, an English school teacher. We had a former Wall Street banker. We had a physicist. We had, you know, a drug addict that, you know, was in severe, uh, a severe shape, had to go through rehab, et cetera, and wanted to turn his life around. So, it's just cool, you know, kind of pointing out the similarities between, you know, your experience and mine and how, you know, decades later, they're still very, very similar. So let's fast forward a bit. Um, tell me, tell me about your experiences. What made you want to become uh, a doctor? How did you tap into the healthcare and the medical field? So you got to fast forward a number of years because I didn't go to med school until I was 36. And uh, I transferred from the active Navy SEALs in 1978, finished my five-year obligation and uh, decided I would go and get my MBA and seek my fortune in the business world at a time uh, when that was possible. The uh, military wasn't, wasn't popular and schools were accepting us on GI Bill. So I, you know, I went to uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia, where I happily met the love of my life and married her and dragged her away eventually and got my MBA, started a couple of businesses there and, you know, all just trying to find my way. 
but suddenly found myself in Washington, D.C., working for the Naval Sea Systems Command, doing consulting work in special operations as an MBA. I'd only been doing it for about six months when I came home one day and said, sweetheart, I hate this job. <laughs> you know, you know, I did. I got my MBA because the GI Bill gave me money to live on to do it. But now I'm in a world with no morals, no ethics. And, you know, that's not what the Boy Scouts taught me. That's not what the Navy SEALs or the military, Naval Academy taught me. You know, to be successful in the, in the, in the business world, you got to make money and you got to make that money from somebody else. And I just, I came home going, this is not really what I think I want to do for the rest of my life. And she goes, well, that's nice, sweetheart, because I'm holding your one-year-old son in my arms and I think there's another one fluttering in my tummy. What exactly do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I said, I want to be a doctor. I thought about it. I want to do something that makes me feel as good about as, as being a Navy SEAL platoon commander did. And at the time, by the way, I had already called the Navy and said, take me back. I need to go back on active duty. I hadn't been out of the Navy six months before I realized, damn, the civilian world doesn't have 30 days of paid vacation, you know, doesn't have free medical. Uh, they don't pay you more when you have babies. So, you know, the Navy's response was, hey, uh, Sir, appreciate your calling, but we're drawing down. It's a post-Vietnam time. We don't need more frogmen. Stay where you are. We'll call you back from the reserves if we need you. Okay. So the reason I wanted to go to medical school had two, two attachments to it. And I told my wife this up front. I want to go back on the military. And in order to afford to go to medical school, I got to get a military scholarship. And guess what comes with graduation? I get another green ID card. So I told her, I said, we're going back on the military as a doctor. And, uh, you know, I might find something in the special operations world to do as a doctor. But the bottom line is I wanted to go to med school to, to find something that made it fun to go to work. Because I don't know, you probably remember this. You know, when we were in, the, in a platoon as young men and we got to work out and parachute and scuba dive and, para, you know, and rappel down dams, you know, Sleep was a, was an inconvenience because we had to do it before we could wake up the next day and do it again. So, you know, that was as much fun as a young man could ever have. And I wanted that again. So that's what really took me down that medical school pathway. What was your wife's response to you uh, when you told her you wanted to go back into the military? Well, I, I, I am thrilled to say that. I love telling the story. When I, and I said, sweetheart, tell me not to do this because we're about ready to have a second child. I just found out. And to go to med school, even on a scholarship with three years of residency, we have to be very poor for the next seven years. So I said, so if you tell me not to do it, that's OK, because I'm an MBA and I'll make money and we'll be OK. We own a house, et cetera. She, you know, she very quickly said, look, do what makes you happy. We were poor and happy when we got married, and we can be poor and happy again. You know, and I will honor to honor her to my day, dying day for giving permission to do that because she said, I just want you to come home and love your children. And you can't do that if you're unhappy. How long have you guys been married? 38 years and counting. God bless. So what's, what's been the key to your marriage? Uh, obviously, it sounds like communication and, you know, on loving support, but uh, what are some other things that, you know, you could give a young couple starting out or even a young military couple. Well, the first thing is, you know, find somebody that shares your values. And having grown up in a dysfunctional family, um, 
I needed a woman that shared a love of family, which, you know, my dad, in his to his benefit, did stop drinking later in life after all three of the children had left home and became very active in Alcoholics Anonymous and did some things that I can be proud of. But but raising a functional family was not one of them. So when I dated women, one is I looked at them all believing I would I would find marriage later in life because the whole idea scared me because I didn't have a good family experience to, to think that I could have. So I, I found a woman who did have a happy family, who loved her and who wanted to build a happy family of her own. And I thought, you know, this is the kind of woman that I could build a future with. And so I had been dating her for about three years that before I realized that if I didn't ask her to marry her, somebody marry me, somebody else was going to do it. So um, she was uh, 27 when I was 30 when I said, you know, let me let me take you away from all this. But I, I knew when she said yes, it meant that she was committed to me for life. And that was what that's what I wanted. Too many people say, let's get married because we love each other and, you know, we the money will be better or, you know, we can have pretty children, but they don't make a commitment for life. But I knew when she said I do, it was for life. Was there a, you know, a tough moment that comes to mind uh, throughout the last, you know, 30 plus years you both have been together where, you know, you had to rely on some of the you know, training, skill set, et cetera, of mindset or perseverance uh, between you and your wife, you know, to make it to make it work? Or has it always been easy? I mean, kind of give us, you know, some wisdom pieces that we can take away from what to do when faced with a, a tough patch or a tough road in our marriage. So I wish I had that story to tell, but ours has been 38 years of, of a mutually supportive marriage. But the challenge to our marriage came, you know, when I went to war in Iraq, the, that's, that was um, seven months, 2003, 2004, in a war zone in the early part of the war where uh, even though I was a doctor and behind enemy lines, uh, it was a dangerous place. We were getting mortared on a regular basis. Bombs were going up around us. I had to deal with gunshot wounds and mass casualties. And my wife is at home with two children in the you know high school and early college year, trying to hold things together and not worry about me, but she kept a, a video display on her computer of, of a, a feed of Baghdad, and every time a bomb would go off, I'd get an email going, "Are you okay?" And what I'd like to reflect back on was we couldn't call home from Iraq very easily in the early part of the war. That changed later on. But I would call home, hey, sweetheart, it's me. How are you doing? Oh, everything here is fine. Nothing to worry about. Don't you spend one minute worrying about me. And she was lying through her teeth. Uh, we had an 18-year-old daughter who was driving her crazy. And, you know, we're getting ready to run away from home. And, you know, son was in college and trying to pay the bills. And, you know, and I'm, I'm in Baghdad. Or I'm sorry, in Havania, Devil's Triangle, getting watered every night. And she goes, how's things here? It's fine. Nothing problem in this nice little safety doctor clinic back behind enemy lines. And, you know, and, and that was a challenge. To, but we both knew that what we needed to do for each other was not worry and make sure the other person didn't worry. We both knew that, that we were lying, 
but we kept it, you know, good face up and, and it made it easier. So you said you were in Iraq 2003 and 2004. Was that, you know, consecutively uh, for two years straight? Yeah. No, it was, a, it was a seven month period that started in November of 2003 or October, November of 2003 and ended in April 2004. I had volunteered to go with the 82nd Airborne Division uh, at, at this early part of the war because the military was just uh, beginning to change doctor deployments to one year deployments. And this was going to be one of the last of the six, seven month deployments. So I said, sign me up now. I'd rather I'd rather go now and make it shorter than go later in the war when it might be easier but stay longer. So I was very deliberate in my attempt to stay away from um, family separation and the challenges of being a doctor in a war zone, which sucked, by the way. Yeah. So let's dive let's dive deeper into that. I mean, were you uh, essentially leading a team of you know other healthcare professionals in the war zone, or you know were you under the command of uh, another individual, and I mean, tell us about the dynamics. Well, I had recently been promoted to Fulbright Colonel, so I found myself in an unusual position. I was assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division, which was commanded by a two-star general, and I was in the DISCOM area, the Army's uh, Division Support Command, which was commanded by a colonel. So I, I had the same rank as the colonel commander in my area, and so I could I could ask for a helicopter and get it just by virtue of my rank. And um, it was a, a uh, desert of disaster when we got there. We had to build a, a clinic from bombed out buildings in an in a airfield on Habania that had been a British airfield that was just, when we got there, there was no power, there was no water, there was no internet. You know, we had everything we had, we carried on our backs, but I built a, you know, a clinic from scratch hiring locals and using uh, cash in bags because there were no banks to pay them. And we built a fully capable emergency room area clinics, uh, mass casualty treatment facility. And, and we were busy from, from you know, the day we opened. It got, it got worse over time. But I, you know, I'm a family physician and had a family physician, a pediatrician working for me. We had a bunch of medics from the 82nd Airborne Division. Most of them were 18 years old and wet behind the ears and, you know, having to run uh, ambulance uh, missions with the 82nd Airborne. You know, one ambulance would go out with every, every patrol. And, you know, they found themselves in bad guy country dealing with stuff I had to teach 18-year-old kids how to use morphine because they were going to be the front lines. Doctors didn't go out on these missions. We stayed at home to pick them up when they came back. And, you know, I, things that a family physician never dreamed they would have to do, we had to do in a war zone. One good example of that was we got things up and operational now. I had my three docs and my medics and things were working pretty well. Uh, we weren't getting mortared as often because I'd asked the 82nd Airborne Division commander to make the mortars stop. And he, uh, he sent a, a, a counter battery down to our area that had a radar activated uh, artillery piece attached to it. That as soon as a mortar was fired, the computer calculated the, the return trajectory and fired on that site. And literally return fire happened before the mortar hit our ground. So that stopped real quick. Thank you. Thank you, General Schwanick, for that. But 
I got a call at two o'clock in the morning. I happened to be the doctor on call in the clinic. And it says, stand by to receive a multiple gunshot wound casually. It's en route to your location. Uh, arrival one hour for an ambulance transfer because ambulance could only go so far before they had to drop their casualty and go back to where they came from. And I was going to pick up this casualty who happened to be a bad guy who had tried to attack, attack our division headquarters two hours north of us. And he was... Uh, he arrived at our facility with three gunshot wounds, two entry, three three entries and one exit. So there were two bullets still inside him. An amputated right arm held on by a piece of skin, you know, tourniquet in place. IVs in his clavicular and femoral areas that had failed, and he's still alert and talking to us. And we had to get him stabilized and get ready, get into ambulance to ship to the surgical facility two hours to our south, and. You know, I, I got the phone call, called for another doctor to come down. And, of course, everybody got out of bed and came because this was a big event. And, you know, I found myself having to stabilize a bad guy with multiple gunshot wounds. We did a full advanced trauma life support, you know, survey of the guy. But my pediatrician couldn't get an IV in this guy. He could thread an IV in the scalp of a baby, but there was so little blood left in this guy that we couldn't get an IV in him. So I found myself having to do what I'd been trained to do on animals and do what's called a venous cut down. I had to cut down into his ankle, find a vein, thread it with an IV, tie it in place. I'd only done this on animals before. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing? I'm a family doctor. I'm doing surgery in a war zone. But it worked. We got fluid on board. We got morphine on board. We got him into an ambulance ready to go. It was about an hour at our site. And during the process of doing this, I gave him over 100 milligrams of morphine, which is a fatal dose in a healthy person. But he was chewing it up with the pain he was suffering from so fast that I just you know, had to keep giving it. And one of the heroic stories that comes out of that is an, a doctor, as I've already told you, doesn't go in ambulance rides. Because they're going, you know, they're guarded on every side by armed 82nd Urban Division people. And, you know, we're going to travel through bad guy country. But my pediatrician came to me as we were loading the ambulance. He says, you got to let me go. And I had three doctors. This was two hours through bad guy country. And, uh, and I said, you know, sir, you, you, I can't let you do this. Um, you know, the rules, doctors don't go on ambulance transfers. And he looked at me with the most intense eyes I've ever seen. He said, Doc, you got to let me go. And against my better judgment and against regulations, I said, you know something, I don't. So I'm going to let you go, but I need you back in the morning because, you know, they're not shooting at us right now. And what he was telling me, what he told me the next day, is he was trying to show this 18-year-old medic how to draw up 10, 5 milligrams from a 10-milligram vial. And the kid was so scared, he couldn't do it. And he, and he knew this guy was probably going to die on the ambulance transfer, and he needed his death <laughs> to be on his conscience instead of the medics. And, you know, I regret to this day I didn't put him for a medal for his heroism that night because he went to the uh, assault force commander and he goes, you know, this guy's not going to make it two hours. He's not. He's going to die in process. But it's night and it's raining and the bad guys aren't expecting it. If you drive us right through the middle of the devil's triangle, we'll be at that site in 30 minutes. And they won't expect it coming. And he might just make it. And the, the assault force commander 
got permission and they drove right through bad guy country. Not a shot was fired in either direction. And uh, they saved this guy's life. He lived because of uh, this doctor wanted, wanted that responsibility on himself. That young man, by the way, that pediatrician now is a colonel on active duty and, and serving in, in uh, the Army still. Wow. What an incredible story. Uh, My hero. Absolutely. You know, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on, you know, that experience, that intimate experience with treating uh, and essentially saving the life uh, of someone that was trying to kill, you know, Americans and kill our troops. Uh, where do you what controversy or thoughts are going through your head, you know, from a moral, ethical, uh, you know, patriotic, and especially from a healthcare standpoint? I mean, what, what's the decision-making process like? Well, we didn't have time to make those kinds of decisions when this was happening. Um, you know, I remember that everybody in the room were intimately aware that we were treating a man who had just tried to drive a bomb-loaded truck truck into our division headquarters. We all knew that this was our enemy, but we were all trained medical professionals, and our job was to save lives. And there wasn't a person in the room that wasn't going to do everything that we were trained to do. Our, you know, In retrospect, when we thought about it after the fact, and there was a few mumblings of, you know, wow, you know, did we really just save a bad guy? But nobody really felt that that was the wrong thing to do. The real, the real lesson that came out of that event was that every single one of us did what medical medics and doctors have done in every war in history. We treat the wounded. And if the wounded happens to be a German or a uh, Vietnamese that came to our care, we're going to provide the care that they need because the hope is that that gentleman will grow up in a world without war one day and that he'll talk to his children about the kindness was given to him by the Americans and great good will come from what we did that night. I know he lived and I hope that he lived to tell the world that the Americans are, are pretty good people. I love it. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And I've never actually heard that perspective or, you know, I can tell you definitely put you and, you know, some of your teammates, especially from that era, people that have had similar experience, put thought into, you know, that response and kind of justifying, you know, being put in that kind of situation, uh, you know, having that moral and ethical challenge. So pretty incredible. Uh, I, I just can't imagine. Um, so tell us about, you know, uh, coming home from Iraq. How was that? Uh, how was it like, you know, walking into your home for the first time after, you know, seeing what you did and being exposed to what you were? Well, it's kind of fun to tell the story of coming home because, you know, <clears throat> yes, I'm a full, full bird colonel, but half my career was in the Navy and the rest of my career was in, is, as a doctor. And, you know, I was with Delta Force for four years as their command surgeon. And we should probably mention a couple of those fun stories. But when it came time to come home, the whole division was coming home and I was with them. And one of the young captains there said, you know, Colonel, you're, you're the senior officer in this group, but you're not really part of the 82nd Airborne Division. When we get to our first stop in Balad, Iraq, 
if you want to say bye there, you can get a standby to Germany direct in the commercial flight home because you're what we call a VIP in the military. And I went, really? So we, we, we hit our first stop, which was supposed to go to, from Balad to, uh, to Turkey, from Turkey to Germany, and, you know, wait a week or two each time to get, you know, flights home. And uh, I get to Balad and they go, are there any flights to Germany that a colonel could get on? Uh, yes, sir. There's five of them today. And I went, really? What do I have to do? Sign here, sir, and have a seat. So the division went up to barracks and I stayed there and got on the, I think the fourth flight out. There was one seat left. And and they rushed me through um, VIP customs in Iraq. And my bags weren't searched really well. And that's an important part of this story. And I, you know, I end up in Germany and I, and and the plane lands and it's a, you know it's a C17 monster transport and you know filled with jeeps and people you know we're all strapped into the side walls and the door opens and a soldier walks in and goes colonel adams is there a colonel adams here yes sir where are your bags i got them let's go jeep waiting for you really this has never happened to me and uh, i get out and there's a major driving and he takes me to the commercial airport and he says, do you have any civilian clothes? I said, yeah, I got one pair in the bottom of the bag. Well, put them on, sir, because you're on a flight at 5 o'clock this morning. And you got about six hours. So there's a shower over there. Clean up. Get on your civilian clothes. We'll pick you up in a, about six hours. Take a nap if you'd like. And so, you know, I clean up, get the, wipe the dirty dust out of my teeth and put on my one pair of civilian clothes. And, and they wake me up at 4 in the morning. Come on with us. Let's go to the airport. Drive in the airport. Hand me my tickets. Check my bags. And all I've got left is my little camouflage um, shoulder bag that's attached to the mollies that were issued. And I go, this is so much fun. I'm going home. And I haven't called my wife yet because I'm not going to believe it till I see it. And I throw the molly bag on the, the x-ray machine and I'm looking beyond it. And there's an ABC, you know, sorry, there's an alcohol uh, duty-free store there. I think I'll go buy a bottle of something to take home with me. About that time, my uh, screener goes, sir, could you come here for a minute and tell me what's in the side pocket of your bag here? And I look at it and I go, I don't know what that is. They look like batteries. And they go, no, sir, I don't think those are batteries. I'm going to call my supervisor. So a, a young lady with an MP5 submachine gun comes running up, locked and loaded, and says, would you remove that contents of that pocket from your bag? And I pull out a I knew exactly what it was, 50 rounds of 9-millimeter ammunition that nobody had caught in my VIP customs search. And, I, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm so going to jail here. <laughs> and I look at the box, and I look at the lady, and I go, you know, ma'am, these bullets would work really well in that MP5 submachine gun you're carrying, and I don't need these anymore. And she goes, hmm. She smiles and she goes, that would make my paperwork a whole lot easier. And she took them and she winked at me and told me to go on through. Because, you know, we're on the same team. And she knew where I was coming from. I went, <laughs> No way. That is incredible. But I, I didn't call my wife until uh, they, they had ordered boarding. We're now boarding Delta Airlines, heading home to Fayetteville, direct flight. And I called my wife and I said, sweetheart, could you pick me up in about eight hours? You know, and she chuckled and laughed and squealed. And um, it, was, it was a great homecoming. So awesome. So, I mean... What was it like returning home from, you know, Iraq? Uh, was it, did you have a trouble adjusting to civilian life or was it kind of just a walk in the park, you know, business as usual? 
No, there's an adjustment period, um, no question about it. And uh, one of the interesting medical, oh, by the ways, is when I got off the airplane and I looked around, all the colors were different. Um, after seven months in a desert where the only two colors that you ever saw was brown and blue. The sky was blue and the sand was brown and the uniforms were brown. Our teeth were brown from the dust in it. The, the rods and cones of the eyes down-regulated. They had, they had not seen the color red or green or yellow for so long. The eyes actually had to relearn how to process the color input. And that's, I think that's just a fascinating old, by the way, that, that everybody I talked to noticed the same thing. The greens were these vivid greens and the reds were, you know, jumping out at you. you know, yellow was, wow. But, but there's a, you know, there's a downtime that, you know, the division locks everybody down for a period to, you know, make sure that you get your debriefings, you know, not to go home and drink alcohol because you haven't had it in a long time. They don't need you to drive a, car drunk because one beer will get you. So, the, you know, and, and re reacquainting with the family is uh, another learning experience, um, you know, resetting your sleep-wake cycles. And, uh, you know, Fort Bragg had, has an artillery uh, unit attached to it. And when they fire 50-mile rounds, the right windows shake. And, uh, and that was disconcerting. It scared me every single time I heard it. Booms were not happy. Backfires of cars were not pleasant. And it was many, many years before I could um, watch anything on TV or even see a picture of, of the war in Iraq and not, not feel uncomfortable. So let's transition out of the military. Um, what year was it when you separated and, and what was the journey like after that? So 2006, I'd hit the 20-year mark and you know, retired. And the Surgeon General of the Army called me and said, hey, Doc, what can I do to keep you? Would really love to have you stay a little bit longer. And, um, and I said, well, sir, the only thing I would ask of you is if you can give me a job that allows me to be a doctor, I'll be okay. If I can see patients, you know, I'll stay. Yeah, well, Colonel, no, you know that I can't do that. You're a Colonel. I need you to do Colonel jobs. And I said, I know, because my job at the time was chief of the Department of Deployment Health. And so, you know, I, I was an administrator three quarters of the time and a doctor a quarter of the time. And because I started medicine late in life, I still loved being a doctor. And that's what I wanted to do. So um, I got out and looked for a civilian job and uh, shortening the story a little bit uh, out of the blue, I get a letter from the Raleigh-Durham area saying, you know, we got this little clinic up here that needs a doctor and it's a mass mailing. But it said, if you want this clinic, call us, we'll just give it to you. Because it was a doctor and a PA and they'd lost their doctor. So I said, sweetheart, I got to make a run up to Raleigh. It's only, you know, an hour away. And I went up there and checked out the clinic. And as you know, I'd gotten my MBA before I went to med school. So I know how to read a balance sheet. And I took a look at this little clinic operation. I went, wow, you know, you could make a living here. This is this place is good. And, uh, and I, I wrote him. I said, I'll take it. Called my wife and said, sell the house. We're moving. As luck would have it, Raleigh was where our son lived. And she was thrilled with the idea. So I took the job in Raleigh, got there in a little town called Nightdale, North Carolina, a bedroom community of Raleigh, and was this town's first family physician. And I was welcomed with open arms. Our, our clinic exploded, and, um, and we became busy, and I was having a, the time of my life. 
Uh, but what interesting followed was we became really busy really fast. And uh, I realized I'm going to have to have a bigger clinic than this little five-room you know, place I was in. So the MBA in me kicks in and I grab my staff and I go, you know, we can't stay in this building. We got to find a bigger place to go. And two big hospital groups are coming to town and this town's growing. What do you say I build us a bigger place? And they all go, it's your money, do it. So I ended up going to the local bank. This is 2007 now. You have to, to put it in perspective, the banking crisis happened in 2008 and the rules hadn't changed yet. So I went to the bank and I said, hi, I'm your only docking town and here's my balance sheet. We're doing really well. Lend me $4 million. I'd like to build a new place. They go, okay, sure. And I sign on the dotted line. And, and, and just on my smile and, and a few other doctors I brought in as partners, we borrowed $4 million on our good looks, bought a million dollar chunk of land on the main drag through town, built a $3 million building on top of that and opened a 14,000 square foot multiple specialty clinic. And, um, you know, I retired from medicine last month, as you know, and I sold that same building 11 years after we built it. Uh, and it has grown to seven family physicians from the, the little doc and a PA we started. And it has a physical therapy clinic. It has a, um, uh, chiropractic clinic and it is, it is the premier medical real estate in that town. And we're very proud of that. I got lucky. <laughs> so incredible. Um, and so, all right. So you're a practicing physician. You have your own practice for, you know, close to a decade. And when, so when did you transition out of, you know, being a full-time, uh, family doctor? So about a year ago, um, I could see that retirement was on the horizon for more than one reason. I still loved what I did, and I was still very much in love with the 2,000 patients I was taking care of that I had you know, take, been taking care of for this decade. But the changes in the medical system were getting more and more difficult. It wasn't as fun to be a doctor, uh, and, it, and it still isn't today. It's hard to find a doctor that that loves the world that we have to we have to operate in. So, you know, I went to halftime about a year ago and said, I'm just going to kind of see what's going on and, and let people know that, that there's going to be a retirement in my future. Um, and systems continued to change. The electronic medical records system was make, making it more and more difficult to be successful and happy. Uh, and the administrative organizations that manage doctors. And I've painted a picture of me, the independent doctor, but, but let me be clear that the independent doctor was dead when I came to Nightdale to be a doctor. You just could not survive in the medical community uh, as a private practitioner because insurance companies pay private doctors half of what they pay a corporate doctor because corporate doctors have negotiated insurance payments that are higher. And the government has encouraged the insurance companies by exempting them from the antitrust, anti-monopoly laws to price fix doctors out of business because it's more cost effective for the government to manage large entities with single billing numbers than it is lots of little guys. And so yeah, I see you shaking your head and you should because there's no other industry in the United States that has been given permission by the government 
to push independent businessmen out of business. So um, it finally got just too hard. And I told my patients during that year of part-time that when it became no longer fun to come to work, then I was going to call it a day. And, you know, I had a number of attempts to help change and improve the system that I was working in. I had a great company to work for, but, you know, they were stuck with the government regulations and the rules and the electronic medical records, and they couldn't fix it and I couldn't fix it. So I said, you know, the frustration has gotten high enough that I'm going to let the younger guys deal with this and I'm going to move on and find new adventures. And so, I mean, you ended up writing two books, uh, you know, so far in the last, you know, handful of years uh, that you've been working on. One of them I have right here next to me called Six Days of Impossible, uh, Navy Seal Hell Week, A Doctor Looks Back. Tell us about that journey. Uh, what was it like, you know, writing a book? Did you always know you were going to be an author? Um, how was the process? So I've, I've always enjoyed writing and I've been published in a a number of uh, medical journals and uh, in, in, twice in a fishing magazine because I tell good stories. And uh, the, the, the story about Hell Week was just a book that I really wanted somebody else to write. But when I couldn't find somebody else to write it, um, I said, well, I better just do it myself. And I just started writing one chapter at a time. I mean, I'm going to write about Hell Week. So I'm going to write my first day and then my second day and then, you know, interviewed the other members of my class and I would write down their stories. And after a year or so, I had a, enough chapters to be a book. So I said, all right, maybe settle down and turn it into a book. And then, you know, when I had all the pieces assembled, uh, then I started taking it seriously and getting editors involved and, and trying to turn it into something that I could be proud of. And I was able to get my you know, instructors to read it. And I got, uh, you know, a nice statement from my Medal of Honor instructor, Mike Thornton, that, you know, this was a story about the best class he ever put through training. So that gave it some significance. And, um, uh, you know, I wrote it, I rewrote it, and, you know, enough times that it's finally something that now it's been out for two years and there's never been a week that somebody on Amazon hasn't bought my book. So it's uh, thank you very much to America. They like it. It's good. And with that success under my belt and retirement nearing, I tried the same approach with the only other book that I really want to wanted to write. Because over the years as a doctor, 35 years from wanting to go med school to, to retirement, I had been I had been a teacher. And all doctors are teachers to some extent. You've got to teach your PAs and your nurse practitioners how to be, you know, effective as medical care providers. You've got medical students that you rotate through that you want to teach. And I, I found myself teaching with the same stories over and over again. And these stories were the, oh, my goodness, you know, moments in my life as a doctor. Many of them involved scary events, life-saving events, um, mistakes that I had made, you know, deaths that could might have happened differently had I been better at what I did, you know, lives that were saved because I was good at what I did, gunshot wound training when I was with Delta Force at Charity Hospital in New Orleans, where I could see 10 and 15 gunshot wounds a night. You know, these are stories that have tremendous learning uh, pieces attached to them. And I would tell them over and over again, I said, you know what? I got to write these down because I've told them enough times that it won't be hard to write them down and I don't want them to die with me. So that was the motivation 
for my second book called Swords and Saints, A Doctor's Journey. And it begins as a medical uh, student uh, aspirant in, when you know, tells the stories we've already talked about. How do I get into medical school? And once I'm there, you know, how do I deal with the challenges of medical school? And then three years of residency and then a brand new young doctor suddenly assigned to Fort Bragg, you know, with Delta Force knocking on my door saying, come play with me because I see he used to be a Navy SEAL. And then rapid deployment adventures with them coming back, you know, developing my skills as a family doc, delivered hundreds of babies. And, you know, I had a hard time writing this book about being a doctor without making it sound like I was an OBGYN doctor, because clearly one of the scariest things that I ever did as a doctor was deliver babies, because it's really easy until those last few minutes when that baby wants to come out. And that's when things go wrong and they can go really wrong, really fast. You know, they come out backwards, but first, that first one of those happened when I was a medical student. They come out in twos and threes and fours, you know, I'm part of delivers of twins and triplets and quadruplets, you know, and mommies that go into shock and, and babies that come out deformed and, and without body parts that they should have and uh, abortions that have to happen to save the mother's life. You know, all of these are, are things that you don't think about when you go to med school, but when you're faced for it and you're the decision maker, oh my. So I wanted to tell those stories and I had... 72 chapters of individual patient experiences from pediatrics to obstetrics to family doc to geriatrician to wartime experiences to Delta deployments. And it's really a fun book. It just, every chapter is another, oh, really? You know, I mean, yes, fun fact is, yeah, I was a breach with my mom. Uh, you know, I came out butt first. So um, I'm, yeah, when I was uh, growing up, my mom would always tell my friends and family, you know, yeah, my son came out mooning the world. Um, so just kind of a, a funny side note. But no, I think it's so powerful, you know, especially for someone like yourself with all the diverse experiences you've had throughout your life to, you know, share that wisdom. It's almost, you know, another sense of duty, if you will. You know, you have to share your legacy uh, notes, your wisdom nuggets and, you know, things for other generations, you know, to learn. We've already talked in this episode and mentioned, you know, there's so many similarities from the Vietnam War to, you know, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan to modern day, you know, warfare, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the same thing is is true to so many different fields and industries. And so, you know, wisdom doesn't have to just be learned through experience. It can also be learned through others experience. So God bless you for writing a second book. And I can't wait to read it. Um transitioning real quick, you know, I'm very curious, you know, for myself and our listeners, uh, what your thoughts are on current events. I mean, what is your thoughts on COVID-19 and everything that's going on uh, in the world today? So we're recording this on March the 31st, and the nation is in lockdown and businesses are uh, failing and uh, we can't go to the pool to work out and we can't... uh, you know, be with our friends, and the world is scared. My wife is scared. The news is scaring people to death. But when all is said and done, and I'll stick my neck out here uh, and tell you that this particular viral event, where the seventh cold virus in history has made itself known, 
uh, we'll look back on this as a relative non-event in the in the world of infectious diseases, because when you actually look at the numbers of what's happening right now um, in China, 0.006% of their population was affected. It's over there already. It lasted about 90 days. And like all cold viruses of the winter, it died. You know, some people are suggesting that this will be the first cold virus to survive the winter and go on and make us sick forever. But statistically speaking, that's unlikely. The, at this, on this same day, March the 31st, uh, well, I should say this same week, the CDC has just declared the flu virus an epidemic, not a, no longer a pandemic, because it's affected 7.4% of the United States' population, has killed 22,000 people and infected almost 40 million, and yet it's not showing up on the news at all. There's no comparison. You know, this, this blip, I, I've checked a number of states that are, you know, claiming, you know, disaster status. And again, it's less than one-tenth of one percent of the population has been affected, and it won't get any higher. It will die just like everybody else. So my prediction for this is we're going to spend $2 trillion of tax dollars. We're going to march closer to a socialized America that um, is probably inevitable over time. We'll, um, what might come out of it is a, a universal health care at some future time, which is needed and we'll learn a lot from what we could have done, should have done. But a lot of people are going to look back with this great embarrassment for having scared us as deeply as they have, you know, statistically unnecessarily. And I say that, you know, I, I feel for every sick person and every death, but way more people are dying of the flu every single day. More people are dying of gunshot wounds in Chicago every single day than are dying of this cold virus. So just to put it in perspective, I will tell you that if you look on March 31st at the CDC's uh, graph of new cases, you can already see that the peak is come and gone and new cases are fewer and fewer every day. I predict that this virus will be declared a non-event in just a few weeks now. So there's hope and light at the end of the tunnel uh, for all the small businesses and people out there that are, you know, being impacted, you know, not just physically um, from illness, but most important, you know, but also bilaterally through uh, just the state and federal regulations and impacts that they're having on businesses and, and just daily routines. Yeah, businesses are in trouble. There's hope. The government, bless their hearts, have put in the bailout package that will take care of almost everybody with our tax dollars, bless our heart. But it will it will assure that America continues and and remains strong. And this this cold virus will will reappear next year and the year after as the previous six have and will. And and so will the flu virus and we'll deal with it and we'll be much better able to deal with it. And 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 a number of um, people will be now immune to it, having been exposed to it. You know, our children are already demonstrating a strong, strong immunity to this coronavirus because their mothers were uh, uh, previously exposed to the other six and their immunity comes through the placenta. Dr. Robert Adams, thank you for your time. Thank you for your friendship. Thanks for the wisdom. It's great having you on. Well, you're absolutely welcome, but I, yeah, I want to ask you to give me one yeah, more minute it. if you could. All right, one more minute because... We talked about a number of things except what is, as a physician, nearest and dearest to my heart, and that is 
what we will learn from this challenged medical system right now, we're going to learn that our system remains broken. And I hope that the lesson that I'm going to continue to preach to those that will listen will be that the greatest successes that are that people are going to continue to applaud are happening in the field by the nurses and the doctors and the PAs and and the medics on these ships at sea and on the on the tent cities in New York City and not a single success story is going to be attributed to the CEOs who weren't ready for this and for the systems that weren't preparing to make doctors better at what they do. And and there's where our system has failed and will continue to fail unless we learn to focus our money and our leadership energy on on the only people in our medical system that make it work and that pay all the bills. The doctors, the nurses, the PAs, that are on the front lines are, are retiring early burned out as I did because the system is not supporting them as they easily can. So my message to America, if you get a chance to put it out there, is start focusing in our medical systems on the people who are doing the work. Stop focusing on your next promotion and how much money you can make out of a broken system. Focus on a system that where America needs the doctors, the PAs, the nurse practitioners, the nurses and medics. Make them the most important thing in your organization and the system will fix itself. And that's my message to America. Dr. Robert, Dr. Robert Adams, thanks. My pleasure, sir.